as we were getting ready for Mass and kind of preparing things back in the sacristy, I, I asked somebody back there, you know, do, they, do you ever wear pink yourself? You know, this is a Sunday we're wearing pink. And he very quickly, very firmly said, no, I don't wear pink. I'm a man. <laughs> All right, then. But it is a bit of a, uh, bit of a peculiar thing to wear, you know, twice, twice a year to wear the pink vestments. And it's, it's once on this, the third Sunday of Advent, of course, Gaudete Sunday today, and then the fourth Sunday of Lent, so three weeks before Easter. So before these big feasts, we have this kind of odd, unique vestment color that we wear. And I was kind of wondered in my own head, like, what's, what's the connection between the pink, the rose, some, sometimes it's called, and, and, the, um, and this kind of almost celebrating the two biggest feast days of the year. Just, I, I never really got the connection, and both of them have this sense of, of joy about them. And I learned something over the summer. I was, I was talking, to, talking to somebody, and she said, she was talking about how her pastor always says a lot of the same things over and over, but that's how, it's like the repetition being the mother of all learning. And she said, every year on Gaudete Sunday, he says the same thing about the pink vestments. He says, well, of course, we wear these vestments because they're a signal to us. Just like right before a sunrise on a clear, beautiful morning, before the sun pops up, you get hues of pink all over the sky. 33 years as a Catholic, I never heard that part of the symbolism of the pink is to signal the sunrise. And so at Christmas time, that's the signal that the Son, Jesus Christ, is about ready to dawn in our midst. And just at, at Lent, that's the sign that we're about ready to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, is about ready to rise. And of course, that's a sense of great joy when there is that kind of that, that beautiful pink sunrise that you think the Lord is about ready to be here or the sun is about ready to shine. It's about Another morning, and maybe people who aren't morning people aren't quite as excited about the sign that morning's upon us. But for us, it is the sign of joy that the Lord is, is come. The Lord is, is about ready to arrive. And so this sense of joy permeates this, this Sunday, except not our readings. It's a bit of a baffling thing that if you're going to pick a gospel that has to do something with joy that the Lord is near... This wouldn't be one of the Gospels that, you're, that would be top five on the list. Because it, it starts with doubt. John the Baptist, who we, we had last Sunday, we had a whole Gospel about him last Sunday. You remember last Sunday, he is just absolutely convicted. He's out in the desert. He's rocking his camel hair clothes. He's munching on some locusts and some wild honey. He's calling out repentance. He's kind of calling out the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Convicted, confident in what the Lord is doing. And today, not so much. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? John's in prison. John the Baptist is now. And so he sends these two disciples to say, Hey, are you one or are you the one or do we miss the boat? This sense of doubt seems to have crept over him. Maybe, maybe prison changed him. Right? Maybe spending a few years in the locker. I don't know if that's a slang word for prison now that I mention it. But if, if that actually changed him, right? And all of a sudden the confidence that he has wears away and doubt 
second-guessing has begun to, to sneak in to John the Baptist's life. And that's a fitting thing for us to reflect on, too, because in all of our lives, doubt can come in so easily. You know, they have the, the moments in our life when we're absolutely convicted. We know that we know that in the Lord and we're confident we can boldly follow wherever he's leading us. And then there are other times where we're just a bit sluggish. Maybe we're slow to respond. Ah, is this really what you're asking of me, Lord? Is this really what you, what you want me to do? And that doubt can just creep in. One of the temptations of that is that we can beat ourselves up quite a bit to say, oh my gosh, I'm just full of doubts. I'm full of fear. I can't get this right. But Jesus doesn't go there, right? Jesus doesn't wag the finger at when John the Baptist's disciples come. He doesn't send them back with the message with, yes, of course I'm the Messiah. Tell John the Baptist to get it together and stop being a little pansy already, right? Those aren't the words of Jesus Christ. And sometimes those are the words that we say to ourselves when we're struggling with doubt. What does he do? He speaks to John in a language John's going to understand. John comes to him with these doubts. And Jesus' response is, well, tell him what you see. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. All signs that we heard in the first reading from the prophet Isaiah, signs that the Messiah is present. And John, who's the last of the prophets, knows it. John speaks the language of the prophets. He knows that. So when his two disciples, his disciples, however many there were, come back to him and say, hey, Jesus said, the blind hear, the lame see, are the, the, bl- the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, all of those things. For John the Baptist, that causes him to flip through the Bible, right? Flip through the Old Testament to go to the prophet Isaiah and say, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. This is it. And yet, it's not just a straight yes or no answer. Jesus doesn't just say, yep, I'm the Messiah. Any more questions? That seems to be the way he treats us also. If we come to him with our doubts, rarely do we ever get just like the the quick answer that sometimes would seem so nice, that would just be the straightforward answer that we we could get. We don't. We don't just get that quick answer. We get something that, you know, John the Baptist still has to wrestle with this. He still has to struggle. He gets a little bit more clarity if this message gets back to him altogether. But it's not so straightforward. But what do you think it builds inside John? As he gets this message, he's struggling with doubts and he gets this response that yes, he is, but to still kind of see all of these signs. And maybe that's where the second reading comes in so perfectly. The second reading is from the letter of James and James gives this example of the farmer. See how the farmer, well, he starts off, be patient, my brothers and sisters. See how the farmer awaits the rains, the spring rains, the the fall rains to yield a harvest. This image of a farmer as one who has to wait. And so many people who farm know this. And heck, anybody who plants anything knows this, that you don't just plant something in the ground and three days later you get to harvest it. And that's just the endless cycle. But you plant And even though how advanced our technology is, you don't exactly know what will happen. The farmer still has to wait. And the gardener, anybody who's planting flowers, has to wait on the Lord to water them. Can't just simply have it happen at our own desire as we want. But we still have to wait on the Lord. 
that patience that seems to build up over time. And even in, in talking to, to people who do farm, there does seem to be a difference of, of people who are good at waiting when they farm. Some who have just this confidence of like, yeah, it's kind of dry right now, but, you know, the Lord always seems to provide rain. Or, you know, I'd really like to get into the field at harvest time, but the fields are just so wet. And, and sometimes people are just really calm about that. And sometimes people are a bit angsty about that. So this invitation to patience that farmers have to live every year, every month, but also that all of us in a spiritual way have to live this ability to be patient. But if we're able to to grow in that and to really wrestle with that as John the Baptist has to, with this whole sense of waiting and accepting that things don't happen so quick, it's that where joy comes in. Because joy happens not when we just get what we want immediately. Joy doesn't happen when we just have immediate gratification. Maybe that's like passing pleasure. But real, authentic joy comes from time, comes from the wrestling with the Lord, comes from being faithful even in the midst of adversity, struggling even when we mess up ourselves or even when we get frustrated that something isn't happening the way we would like it to happen. Joy comes when we're willing to be patient, when we're willing to wait with the Lord, to not take every, every decision so seriously, maybe, or every shortcoming, every, every um, kind of step, setback, take it so, so with, such, um, with such pain, but to trust that the Lord is there and to trust that he will come. And that's why this Advent is so important. Every Advent is so important for us because it builds in us the capacity to wait for the Lord, to be patient with him. And if we're able to do that, that's how we grow in joy. And this, every Advent, luckily just doesn't end in kind of like a, an undetermined amount of time. But we always know when Christmas is going to come that the Lord will eventually show up in the midst of our waiting. And so similarly, as we're patient this Advent season, we trust that the Lord will come. Two weeks from today, we celebrate the great feast of Christmas, that the pink signals that the Lord is eventually going to show up. The Lord will dawn in our midst. And that brings us an immense amount of joy. So if we're able to live this Advent season, this last half of Advent well, and wait with the Lord and stay awake and to pay attention when the sun does show up, when Jesus Christ does dawn in our midst, we'll be able to meet him with joy, with an abundance of happiness and rejoice that the Lord has come into our midst to save us.